Father, thank you for uh, the light of your word and that you dwell among us, that you have here at this church for so many years, Lord. And we pray that you'd continue to be faithful to our congregation and your word in our midst. Keep our eyes ever fixed on your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, in the last circle of hell, in the inferno, Dante places in there, who would you guess? Who does he got in the, the lowest circle of hell? Other than the devil himself, of course. Pope. <laughs> the, <laughs> the Pope, he says no. He doesn't have the Pope. He's a few circles before that. <clears throat> it's true. It's true. Uh, he's got Judas there. He also has Brutus. And what do... The, Brutus, not a biblical character, historical figure. What do Brutus and Judas have in common? At, at two Brute, they were both what? They were both betrayers. They're both traitors. Okay? Dante puts them in the very bottom ring of hell. He says, this is the worst of all sins. Those who betray. Those who are traitors. And why is that? Why are traitors so especially despicable? I mean, we, in our culture, in our historical memory, right, we talk about who? Benedict Arnold, right? Benedict Arnold, the people who have betrayed our, our nation. I mean, we have a special ire toward those traitors. Why is that? What is it about that kind of betrayal that's so especially bad? Trust. You're, you're a deceiver. You're a deceiver? Yeah. What is it? Trust. Trust. And the, that you, you're kind of breaking that trust. Right. Yeah. Breaking, that trust. breaking the trust. Yeah. Good. It's uh, personal. It's personal. Good. Mm hmm. For all these reasons and more, I mean, traitors are viewed as the lowest of the low. And our heresy today has to do with traitors, although not in the way that you might expect. But before we get into that, let's do our weekly quiz for fun. Okay? Don't shout out your answer. Just circle true or false. Your knee-jerk reaction here. We'll come back to it at the end. Number one, baptism only counts if the pastor is a true believer. Number two, the church is holy and without blemish. Number three, churches include hypocrites and sinners. Number four, Christians make themselves pure by avoiding the world. Number five, holiness means that you never have to confess sins. It means never having to say you're sorry. That's, uh... All right, we'll come back to that. Let's get into Donatism. All right, so Donatism is the schism, and just a word on this. Um, theologians, historians of the church will sometimes distinguish Donatism as a, a schism or a heretical schism rather than a heresy proper because it really speaks of, of a break that happened within the church. And so there's some elements of it that some would say, ah, heresy isn't quite the right term there. So to me... There, there's a lot of overlap there, but schism, schismatic heresy, whatever you want to say. In any case, it's the schism that teaches that the holiness of the church depends on the purity of its ministers. The holiness of the church depends on the purity of its ministers. Now, that maybe sounds like overly specific. What, is, what application could there be? Well, as we'll see, once you start to pull on this thread, it has a lot of other connections. But this one especially, it's important to give some of the background, some of the historical background that gave rise to Donatism. So it's the fourth century of, of the church. This is around um, the 300s. 
And there's what came to be known as the Great Persecution. This awful emperor, Diocletian. Not all the Roman emperors were so hell-bent on persecuting the church. But Diocletian in particular was coming after Christians. And as he was coming after them, he was burning books, buildings, and bodies. He was asking for, I mean, this is before the printing press, obviously. So if you had a copy of the scriptures, that meant somebody that was writing it out by hand. It was a big deal to have the Bible. He was asking churches to hand their Bibles over and burning them. They were destroying church buildings. And many times the stewards of these places and the the stewards of the, the holy things there were the priests or the pastors, the guys who were kind of overseeing it. And some of them all too willingly complied with the emperor's requests, his demands. I shouldn't say that they were requests because it, it was at, at cost of their life. They knew that if I don't comply, if I don't compromise with the emperor, I'm probably going to die. And many did. Many Christians, especially many of the, the Christian leaders, lost their lives as a result of this persecution. But some Christians, including some of those priests and bishops, leaders of the church, they handed over those holy things. They said, here's the key to the building. Go do what you got to do. And the Latin for handed over is traditore, from which we get the word traitor. They were literally traitors. That's where we get the word from and the idea. They were the people who handed over those holy, sacred things that had been entrusted to their care. Okay? This is what the, ba- the background is now to this heresy. And there were two reactions to this persecution and to everything that was, was arising. And this is from a, a historian by the name of uh, Henry uh, Chadwick, I believe is his name. He says that there were two groups, the hawks and the doves. I don't think this is the name that they actually went by, right? But this is a name that kind of perennially comes up. So the hawks were the ones who said, okay, everyone who, who proved to be a traditore, a traitor, to the cause, they're out. They're out of, the, out of the faith. They're out of the church. We don't have anything to do with them. They're done. And then there were the doves who said, you know what? The, the message of the gospel is forgiveness and mercy. Live and let live. We just want to be able to move forward. You had these two groups, competing kinds of groups. Those who said you absolutely should not ever compromise with the state when it's coming down with its hard hand. And others who said, you know what? This was a horrible time. It's an awful time, but it is what it is. How can we move forward now and reconcile? And then there was an inciting incident, which is that the, the Bishop of Carthage, and Carthage was one of the big influential areas, big, uh, big church, he died. And in order to replace him, three of the doves acted fast, and in a way that was probably a little bit scheming, scheming and they chose a replacement bishop, one who, who thought and felt like them. And they ordained him, got him into the office. Well, come to find out that one of these three doves that um, installed and ordained this new guy had been a traditore, had been a traitor. He's somebody who had handed over books, um, some of the sacred books. And so suddenly there's this outrage, this great outcry among more of the hawks who are saying, no, by no means, this guy is not legitimate. And instead, you know what? We're breaking off. We're forming our own true church. The folks who are known as the Catholics, that everybody was, was kind of known as Catholic, not in the sense of Roman Catholic, but in the sense of the universal church. No, no, no. They're not the real Christians. We are. The ones who, aren't, who never cooperated with the emperor, who n- refused to stand down. Many of us 
gave our lives for the sake of faithfulness, how could we but stand up for them? It's a persuasive argument, wouldn't you say? It's like, yeah, who, who do I want to roll with? Do I want to roll with the guys who rolled over when the going got tough or the ones who really stood fast? But now it prompts this, this schism where a, a group of folks followed Donatus. So Donatus was the schismatic bishop. He was the one leading the charge in North Africa. And he believed that the so-called Catholics were fatally compromised. They had shown their cards. These were not real true believers anymore. And so he wanted to purge the traitors and to purify the church. The church is just going to be made up of the real faithful remnant, the folks who stand fast. And they would even use that language, biblical language. And to the extent that that group got smaller and smaller, they said that was just proof that they were really the faithful ones, that they were such a, a small group. And then the, the thing that really set off the um, controversy, which would last for the better part of a century, was that the Donatists insisted that sacraments from the traditores were invalid. So if you had been baptized by a pastor who himself had been a traditore or had been ordained by one who was a traitor, your baptism didn't count. If you had been receiving uh, the Lord's Supper from a, a pastor or a bishop who had been party to this uh, to this. Uh, heresy, or to, I should say, um, to the compromise there, then that doesn't count. You're not really receiving the body and blood of Jesus. Well, then this really gets things going. St. Augustine would get involved, and anytime St. Augustine gets involved, you know it's serious. It was a really big deal. All right, so I've just given you a, a brief overview of it, questions or clarifications about that history and what kind of started this Donatus schism. Hi, George. Was there any organization to the church the first three years? Sure, okay, yeah. So George's question, was there any organization to the church? Yes, I mean, for sure by the fourth century, you've got a pretty good hierarchy, hierarchy in place of you know, your bishops and your pastors and so forth, so definitely. And that was part of why something like this could take off, because precisely because of that hierarchy and the higher-ups are going to ordain the lower ones and so forth that that um, became the match that started the fire, that ordination of uh, a traditore. Yeah, other questions about that history or the background? All right, so at this point, you're hearing it, and I mean, if you're like me, you kind of sympathize a little bit with the Donatists, don't you? It's like, gosh, they're the ones who are really fighting for a church that's going to be faithful, rather than a church that seems like it's too willing to, to just roll over. And so let's just drill down a little bit more, making this case for Donatism. Donatism really does emphasize the holiness of the church. The church should be the set-apart people of God, should be different from the world. Donatism took that and took it to the max. And let's look at one of the passages that they would return to again and again is Ephesians chapter 5. So grab your Bible, turn to Ephesians 5. Hebrews 5, uh, pick up with verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives, 
as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Okay? That last phrase in particular was one that they would cling to and hang their hat on. Holy and without blemish. That's who the church is or who the church ought to be, they'd say. And so for this church that has compromised, for these leaders who have bent down and bent, bent down before these uh, unholy emperors, then how could they possibly consider themselves to be holy and without blemish? Again, Peter writes, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Quoting from Leviticus. They would often return to Leviticus too. That sense of the, the purity of the people of God and her leaders. So when you um, hear about Donatism and its passion for that purity, I think that there's something there that resonates. Like, okay, yeah, they, they don't want a church that's going to be fatally compromised, that's going to be taking its doctrine and saying, it doesn't matter all that much, we're just going to go with what the world, what the world wants. Okay. Thus is the case for Donatism. But what's at stake here? Why, why does this matter? Well, a number of things. First of all, what is the nature of the church's mission? What is the nature of the church's mission? Donatism had a, a very distinct idea of what the church's mission was. And it primarily circled around that purity. Having a sense of the church is going to be pure. We want it to be real believers and not have some mixture with sinners. Secondly, what's at stake? Well, the efficacy of the sacraments. So they say, yeah, if you got baptized by one of these guys who had been compromised and your baptism is no good, kind of a big deal. I need to know this information, right? And then thirdly, which follows along with this, although the Donatists themselves did not make this case, but Augustine especially would, is the power of the gospel is at stake. How powerful is the word of God? And is it in some sense um, dependent upon those who happen to speak forth or administer that word? Where does its power rely in? All right. So thus Donatism so far. Questions? comments to this point? Yeah, Ellen, go ahead. Ah, good. Yes. Right. So what Ellen has said is that it seems like within this Donatism, there's this error, this kind of perennial human error of thinking basically that we're more important than we actually are <laughs> and not give, giving short shrift to the power of, of God's word, that he's the one who's, who's in charge. Yes, Sandy. This reminded me of a story out of Detroit. Yeah. Oh. And invalidated oh my Catholic, gosh. But this was in the Catholic Church. Right. That was, you know, it has echoes of Donatism in it. That's so interesting. Yeah, and that can have cascading effects. Oh my word. What a mess. Yeah, Pastor Newton. Um, 
in some ways, um, how do I want to say this? A sense, a sense the church in the United States has felt like it's being peripheralized. There are any number of believers that are tempted to readjust our mission and circle the wagons. Sure. Uh, that's sort of a reflection of this stuff, isn't it? Yes, I think so. I mean, the, the circle the wagon temptation is in some small part, although nobody would, would say it nowadays, it, it has a strain of that donatism. Yeah. Now, counterpoint, I, you know, to speak from the American perspective, makes sense. But think about it from a worldwide perspective of the church. You can imagine why Christians in parts of the world where they genuinely are being persecuted, where they really do have to put their life on the line, for the confession of Christ in a way that we don't here in America. We don't. Are there challenges? Is there pushback to being Christian? Sure. But are we daily facing threat of death? We are not. And so you can imagine Christians in other parts of the world looking at Americans in, uh, uh, Christians in America and saying, hey, you guys need to buck up, right? We need to be a little bit more Donatist because you guys, are, you're, you're compromising plenty in ways that you don't even realize. And uh, instead, we, I think we, that circle the wagon mentality is when, if, if you don't have genuine enemies from without, like you'll, you just start, we'll shoot, start shooting your own people, right? And we see a lot of that among, among Christians, unfortunately. Okay, but then let, we're, getting, we're getting into this already. Let's refute Donatism. And we'll start with what was a key text for Augustine in refuting it. Number three on your handout. In this world, saints and sinners are mixed. They are mixed and they are mingled. So go to Matthew chapter 13. And familiar parable story of our Lord. Parable of the wheat and the tares. All right, Matthew 13, picking up with verse... 24. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I'll tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, so Jesus tells this story of wheat and weeds, and as he tells it, he has his zealous helpers that want to sift out, okay, Lord, should we get rid of the wheat, or should we get rid of the weeds, should we, should we go through there and, and pull them up? And he says, no, and why not? What's the problem with doing that? Rip, rip some wheat along with it, yes. As Jesus is telling this story, you have the, the wheat and the weeds, the sons of the kingdom and the, the sons of the evil one, even, he'll say. And so it's like, well, okay, you've got both of them mixed and mingled together. Now, what's interesting is um, Donatists, if they looked at that parable, they'd say that the, the field is the whole world. And so, yes, in the world, you've got wheat and you've got tares. You have the true believers and then you have hypocrites and sinners. Augustine says, no, the field is the church. Field is the church. And within the church, you have both wheat and weeds. 
Now, Augustine, who I'm uh, always in support of and, and go along with, made a little bit of a misstep here because Jesus himself says, and the field is the world. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, be that as it may, I think that there is an important point to, to be made here about understanding that within, within the church, as we see it, it is undoubtedly the case that not every person who happens to show up at church on Sunday is a genuine believer. I mean, would you agree with that? Like, we are not able to see the, the hearts of men. And so, how do you figure out who's a real Christian and who's not? You know, do you do, it, do, you do a quiz like Pastor does in Bible study here? <laughs> For every person who comes in, you know, do you do a quick audit of everyone's life and say, let's see, you know, do a little fruit examination. Let's see if you really, how do you tell? You hide behind the confession booth. You hear what they have to say. <laughs> Woo, that's some good stuff. Yeah, yeah, Judy. Or they come to your door. That happened to me this week. Oh, did it? <laughs> they come to your door and find out. Yeah, yeah, that's another way. Uh, this is the way that our Augsburg Confession, one of our Lutheran Confessions of Faith, um, describes it and defines it. I think it's really helpful. It says, although the church properly, and that word is doing a lot of, a, a lot of work there, Properly is the congregation of saints and true believers. Nevertheless, since in this life many hypocrites and evil persons are mingled therewith, it's lawful to use sacraments administered even by evil men. Lutheran teachers condemned the Donatists and such like who denied it to be lawful to use the ministry of evil men in the church and who thought the ministry of evil men to be unprofitable and of none effect. So there's a distinction that um, the Lutheran fathers there are making which is between the church, properly speaking, and the church as we experience it. And what they're, the distinction that they're making is sometimes it's called the visible and invisible church. Have you heard that phrase before? Or the church hidden and revealed, maybe is an even better way of understanding it, that um, in this present age, the, the church the properly, the congregation of saints, is hidden. We're not able, because we're not able to see the hearts of men. Now, it's hidden. That doesn't mean that it's totally um, and we're totally unable to see it. There's marks of the church that mark it out, right? Not just the fact that, you know, you gather on Sunday and you've got a nice building, but, you know, that you're celebrating the, the gospel and the sacraments. Your focus is on Christ. There are these marks of the church. Um, and so that distinction is really key. This was part of Augustine's point that, listen, in this life, in this time, the church, too, is that field. It has mingled wheat and tares, and we can't uproot them and figure out who are the real believers, much as we might like to make those tests. Yeah, Leslie. Since the Donatists seem to be exclusivists, yeah. how does their church grow? Because yeah. what, do they give them a test as they want to? Yeah, well, that's all. I, that, it's, I mean, right. How do they determine it's a, if, yeah. if I'm a true believer? You know, right. Yeah, this, I mean, this is the ultimate hamstring of the Donatist, right? Because it's always going to keep getting smaller and smaller. Who, is the, who are the real ones, right? And, and again, they would use this as part of their argument. To the extent that it got smaller, that was part of the verification that they were the real people of God. It's like, okay, well, that's a clever strategy. Yeah, I had a colleague at the seminary who used to say, Robert, you and I are the only true believers here, and I'm not sure about you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, 
it's, I mean, it, this really is a perennial um, posture, I think, that can happen among Christians. So we, we want to determine who's pure, who's impure, who's in, who's out. But here's the next point, which is pivotal theologically. Holiness. Yes, they had a passion for holiness. But holiness consists in the presence of forgiveness, not its absence. What I mean by that is the Donatists could give the impression that if you want to be really holy, or if you were really holy, then you didn't need forgiveness, right? That you were somebody who had been perfectly pure. Now, they might not put it that quite that way. And the next heresy that we um, pick up on in two weeks is Pelagianism, which really went a far way with this. Uh, but this notion that your holiness is, that you, you don't need to be forgiven, is delusional. And in fact, let's go to 1 John chapter 1, where Paul's going to, or P, John's going to use very much this language, familiar words from our liturgy as well. 1 John chapter 1, not, the, not John's gospel, but his first epistle. Okay, so listen to what John has to say about those who say that they don't need that forgiveness. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. You can hear the Donatists reading that and saying, that's right, we've got to get all the darkness out of here. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. Preach it, John. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we do what? Deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. It's so important that John says we deceive ourselves. Uh, because we're not deceiving anybody else, right? <laughs> if you say that you are without sin, that you are perfectly holy, you're not deceiving anybody else. You might be deceiving yourself. Yes. If we confess our sins, though, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so true holiness is not in the um, utter absence of forgiveness, but precisely in its presence. That We all need that, that holy-making power of our Lord through forgiveness. That's what, that's what makes us holy. And uh, one theologian named Ben Quash puts it this way. He says, the holiness of the church is precisely that it is a place where this circulation of forgiveness goes on all the time. It's not because forgive, I should say forgiveness is never necessary in the first place. Right. And that's the Donatist mistake. Forgiveness is not necessary. So how can the church be a place where people are comfortable to confess? I don't necessarily mean like out in front of everybody, like, okay, let me, you know, uh, tell you all, all of my awful things, clear the laundry in front of the whole congregation. But I mean, like within our relationships, among one another, what makes a church a place where people feel like they can confess, where they can own their junk and those things that they're ashamed of? What do you think? Yeah, Ellen? Forgiveness. Well, forgiveness. So... If you know that it's a community of forgiveness, then you might be more confident, more willing to do this. I mean, honestly, the best analogy, the community that is the best at this is what? AA, right? And some of you some of you have been, been part of AA, had it in my family. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous is a group of people who get together and like the first thing that they do is acknowledge, you know, 
I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. Like the understanding, the assumption is if you're there, it's because you don't have it all together, right? And, you know, you, you can, whatever, nitpick about the theology, higher power, this sort of thing. But the fact of the matter is, like, that, that's almost, for, for some people, like a, a step closer to church. What the church ought to be like in the sense that it's a community of forgiven sinners, right? Not a community of people who are perfectly pure. And, oh, no, if we bring in somebody who's impure, then that's going to, to stain the rest of us. No, we're a, commun- a community, a fellowship of forgiven sinners. That's who we are. I'm, I'm saying this, and it's like, uh, that, does that really need to be said? Unfortunately, too often it does, right? It's like, no, we're not a perfect community, community of forgiven sinners. It makes all the difference. All right, next, number five on your handout. The efficacy of God's gifts comes from his word, not our works. Okay, the efficacy, fancy way of saying the power of God's gifts comes from his word, not our words. So go to Philippians chapter 1. This is a fascinating passage here. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Before Colossians. All right. So Paul, writing from prison and experiencing this phenomenon. We don't know a lot of the details about which he he speaks, but experiencing a phenomenon where there are some who are preaching Christ genuinely, and there's some that are simply trying to make life difficult for Paul. And if ever there were a moment for him to go full Donatist and be like, listen, the only preaching that counts is when that preaching happens from a real believer. They need the the Paul imprimatur, right? The impalmator. But listen instead to what he says. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Why can Paul say that? Precisely because he knows that the power is not in the proclaimer, but in the proclamation. The power is in the word. That's, the, that's what does the work, not the, the works of man. And you were kind of getting at that before, Ellen. Like that's, that's where it's really at. And Paul says this again and again, Romans 1, his famous line, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God, the dunamis of God, God's dynamite, his power for salvation to everyone who believes the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So when we recognize that that power comes from his word, not from the people, specifically with this Donatist heresy, that uh, to the extent that it believed that only the real pure ministers, their, their word did the work, it's, it's missing the boat. It's totally missing the point. God's word does the work, right? Yes, Sam. Sure. The word that does, does the work. I think that there can be a connection there. Um, that's not nece- necessarily the case, but I think any time that we put the onus and the emphasis more on what we're bringing to the table rather than what God's doing in his word, that the power is in his word, then we're inching in that direction. So I won't say about any particular this or that Christian, but I think any time that we're thinking, okay, what matters here is what I'm doing, that that's really what's going to have the, the power 
we're falling off in that direction. Because you're right, when it comes to holy baptism, what matters is not the, the person, certainly not the pastor. And that's a, a common misconception, is the pastor has some kind of supernatural power, you know, before, or, you know, the water has to come from the Jordan River or something like that. Like it has to be special water. No, that kind of undermines the whole point. God's like, water, the most abundant substance on earth. That makes sense. Because he's the God who says, I desire all people to be saved. Right? He's, he's not trying, he doesn't say, I of Newt, you know? Like, this is the only, if you want to be received into my kingdom, you have to go up to the top of Tibet and find some spe- No! It's like water and word. Simple, guys. Simple. So, anyway, I digress. But that's where the power is at. And then sixth, purification. When we talk about purity, we want to make a big deal out of that. Purification, again, is God's job, not ours. So much trouble we get into when we mistake whose business is what, right? God is the one who's in the business of purifying us, of sanctifying us, of making us holy. You and I can't do it in ourselves. And the reason why, well, Jesus gets at this. Go to Mark chapter 7. Another one of these places where he was ruffling feathers. Okay. Mark chapter 7, picking up with verse 14. Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Okay, so this is one of those McFly moments, right? Like, hello, McFly, listen to me. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But it's the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, then are you also without understanding? Don't you see that whatever goes into a person from outside can't defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And then Mark has a great parenthetical here. Thus he declared all foods clean. Hmm. He said what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, Deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all of these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. Then the question becomes, if that defiling power is not from stuff outside, it's not just a matter of me listening to secular music or watching some movie that I shouldn't see or something like that. If instead the defiling comes from the heart, well, how could I ever hope to be pure? Well, only if God's the one who does the purifying, right? Think of Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It's the promise of the prophets. You can go to uh, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, and then coming into the New Testament, of course, when Jesus talks about you must be born again. That work is work that's done by the Lord. It's not from us redoubling our efforts to try and make ourselves pure. It's not by walling ourselves off from the world. It comes from God, his word, and his spirit. That's what makes us holy. That's what, that's what makes us pure. As Jesus says, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. His word is that heavenly Clorox that makes us clean and pure. And that's yours already. That's yours by faith in him. Now, I've, I've been down this road. Like I, I remember I had a moment in college where I did. I threw out all of my CDs. 
Oh, it was devastating. No, in retrospect. Took all my secular CDs. I said, nope, I'm going to be perfectly pure. Now, to be fair, probably had no business having some of those CDs. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not telling you, like, go out and get the most hardcore gangster rap or something and throw that in. Like, oh, pastor said it doesn't matter. Um, that's not the point. But the, the point is we misunderstand when we think that purity comes from ourselves, from the way that we're keeping ourselves away from, from that impure world. No, the purity comes from God, from his power. And because, listen, when you focus just on purity and you had better be perfectly pure, what can that lead to? What, can, what effect can that have on people? I mean, I think that we're, we're seeing... Yeah. Like prosperity preaching in a sense, too, mm. where if you live a certain way, you will be... Yeah. Yeah. Isolation That's and for sure. You're not spreading God's word. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just become more and more isolated. And so you're not going to be spreading the word. And this gets, yeah, go ahead, Bob. Yeah, it's, it's almost like one word missing. What results when Christians focus on their own purity yeah. rather than the purity of Christ? Yes, that's so right. It just, it's just turning. That's what Luther said, turning in on yourself. Turning, yeah, being curved in on yourself. Yes, Andy. It's like what Yes. Then you'll, then you'll be safe, and that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. Yeah. And what happens is people who, well, a couple things. One, those who are outside the circle of faith, they see that, and they think, well, I guess the gospel's not for me because, you know, I'm a sinner. I know that I'm impure, and so there must not be room for impure people like me. And too often the answer from Christians has been like, yeah, you're right. Get your cooties out of here. We don't want you, right? Or two, for Christians who have fallen, who have sinned, in way, of course, we've all sinned, but I mean, in particular, in ways that are more public or, you know, that are more obvious, in particular, and this has been the case in this country, with sexual sin, you feel like you're, you're beyond the pale, like now you can't be acceptable, you're tainted, right? And so it can um, alienate you from, from the faith, from the community of the faithful and from, from the gospel even. Oh, this is heartbreaking. Because the message of the gospel is not you need to be perfectly pure, otherwise God's not going to accept you. It's that Christ has been pure in your place. It's his purity that we look to and that we lean on. Right. Yeah, Esther. Well, it denies your freedom. Right? You can't set us free. Yeah. And if you're going to rely on the only conference, then you're going to slavery. Right. That's right. Yep. Don't be uh, the, the yoke of slavery. Yeah, George. I always wondered... You know, where did the concept of being a monk come from? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's a similar sort of mentality, right? Um, now, at its best, monks help to preserve Western civilization. You know, they're doing the, the writing, this kind of thing. But uh, a monkish theology, and this is what Luther was often railing against, gives that impression that, okay, my holiness is going to be made through, through my works. You know, whether it be through pilgrimages or through, um, you know, fasting, what have you rather than recognizing that it comes from Christ. It seems to me that that's like putting a basket over yourself. Sure, right. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck with that, right? <laughs> well, let's, let's conclude with this. And I want to say um, that in many respects, this Donatism, if I can put it against Augustinianism, because Augustine was the main um, guy pushing back against this, has a, sort of a purity versus a passion. 
So Donatism has a passion for purity, where Augustinianism has a purity of passion. Oh, what does that mean? What I mean is the passion in that sense of, of willing to suffer things, willing to, to bear with the work of God in the world, right? Let it, let it go. Let it be, Jesus says, until, until the end, until the time. Because it's not going to be through our work that we're able to bring about the kingdom. Donatism flees the world. Augustinianism says engage the world. Donatism wants to be closed and protecting Augustinianism, rooted and branching. You still, you've got to know where you stand. You need that firm identity. But then you're able, having that firm place, knowing what you believe and why, then you're free to be able to branch out without worrying that you might be compromised. Donatism, essentially the message of it, though they wouldn't put it this way, is a kind of faithful absence. That our faithfulness is precisely being absent from the world. Whereas Augustinianism would say it's more of a faithful presence. It's being present in the world, not of the world, of course, but in the world and for the sake of the world. That's why I say last one on your, on your handout, number seven. The church's mission is not retreat, but advance. Not retreat, but advance. Now, there are times when the, the church, when Christians need to retreat. We've talked about that, right? I'm not saying, like, you should never have a day off. There's no place for rest. That is not the, the message here by any means. But that the fundamental posture of the, of the gospel and of the church is not to be retreating from a scary world, but instead seeing it on fire and running in, right? Precisely because, and goes along with the gospel that we heard today, the parable of the talents. Like, we don't have to worry that we're going to, to blow it that we're going to really, we're going to mess up, we're going to fail so spectacularly that God's going to say, you know what, I'm just going to take that away from you right here, right? But instead we can trust that because he's got our back, that he has done all things for our salvation, we can go out with confidence seeking to be about the Father's business. Uh, David Brooks, who's not a theologian, but he is a recent convert to Christianity, wrote a, a fascinating column talking uh, about Donatism. Like, God bless you, David Brooks, thank you. Um, he says the natural instinct is to turn Donatist, to build an ark and defend what's precious. Now, of course, the guy did build an ark in the Bible, and that was a good thing, right? <laughs> but you get what he's saying here. He says the counterintuitive but more successful strategy is to follow Augustine, to exploit a moment of weakness by making yourself even more vulnerable, by striking outward into complexity, swallowing the pure and impure, counterattacking crisis with an evangelical assault. <laughs> I love that. He's saying, what, what happens when the world is contrary, when we find ourselves in a moment where it feels like we're, we're back on our heels? That's the time when even more so we want to be like, here, we've got good news for you, right? Does that mean that sometimes, sometimes Christians are going to suffer for it? Yeah. And Jesus has promised as much, right? But we have the confidence and the surety that he is with you and me every step of the way. Every step of the way. So then how not to be a Donatist? One, petition the Lord for his purity, not your own. Continually seek the Lord where he, he may be found. Secondly, focus on the word, not the preacher. All right? Part of the reason that we preachers wear the get-ups that we do is so that you can tell we're just interchangeable. Right? The preacher next week looks a little bit different than me, but he's still bringing you the word. Okay? That's what matters. 
Thirdly, practice regular confession and absolution. We do it in the context of, of our corporate liturgy on Sunday. We can do it individually as well. Because when we confess our sins, we're acknowledging that our holiness is received, not achieved. And yes, spend time with quote-unquote impure people. Don't be a, a, afraid of your neighbors, those in the world who seem like they're outside of the circle of faith. It's okay. That's where God has called us to be, to be among those who don't know him, who are still just dwelling in the, the impurity of sin, who need that purity that comes from Christ. All right, so we'll close then with your, your quiz answers. Number one, baptism only counts if the pastor is a true believer, true or false? False. Number two, the church is holy and without blemish, true or false? True. There's cracks all over it. <laughs> <laughs> the church, properly speaking, capital C. But then number three, churches include hypocrites and sinners. True or false? True. That's true. That's supposed to say true, actually. So there you go. Number four, Christians make themselves pure by avoiding the world. False. It's received from Christ. And number five, holiness means you never have to confess sins. True or false? False, 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 false. So, uh, good study discussion today. Next week, be here, be square. Pastor Meyer is going to be leading a conversation about South Africa and the work that God's doing there as uh, the Newtons, myself, the Emerys, um, are going, who else? Are going to be, what's that? Pastor Bauer from uh, Interlaken. We're going to be joining uh, Pastor Meyer on a trip to South Africa in February and uh, March, mostly March of this coming year. So he's going to share about that and why we're going there and what God's doing. Um, remember also, it's kind of a Thanksgiving potluck stuff. So if you got leftovers, bring them, share them, and then uh, we'll be back at it in two weeks with Pelagianism. So thanks very much. We'll see you then.